In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungain, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and here in Dublin. So it seems the birth pangs of Brexit are every bit as painful as many predicted. Tales abound of Scottish shellfish producers going bust, a human cry over paperwork, busted supply chains, parcels undelivered, crippling tariffs on steel... Musicians told their freewheeling touring days were over. And it's only week two. We'll take a deep dive into the politics surrounding the early upheavals of Brexit. Are these teething troubles or a fundamental and painful shift that traders will struggle with for years? We'll explain why it's not been smooth sailing. And speaking of which, Ross Lair grabs a new ferry that was originally bound for Belfast as Irish retailers desperately look to the sea to bring in food from the continent and away from the dreaded land bridge. Well, let's go to those birth pains first, Tony, that you referred to. They're being experienced across these islands. Where should we begin? We should probably begin with Irish fishermen because... The fisheries deal was the last part of the treaty to be negotiated on Christmas Eve. And if you want to look at a clear and present pain for the Irish economy, that's where it is. Irish fishermen have done the worst out of all the eight coastal states alongside Germany in terms of the proportionate loss of the value of the quota, the fish quota that Irish boats would have caught in British waters. We will lose something in the region of 43 million euro by 2026 when the fisheries agreement is fully phased in and that 25% of the value of quota is ceded to UK boats and and fishing communities. Um, So it's it's particularly bad for mackerel uh, and prawn fishermen because they are the big valuable stocks that Irish boats have been catching over the years. They're precisely the stocks that British, the British government wanted. So they've taken a big slice of mackerel and prawn quota. And as a result, Ireland is top of the table alongside Germany uh, in terms of the, the greatest pain and burden of the fisheries deal. And do we know how this happened? Because I think in the last episode we were talking about how the deal was put together. Ursula von der Leyen was in touch with the Sherpas from the various governments, which, you know, goes right to the top. Ireland obviously agreed to this in order to get a deal across the line. A judgment call made in Dublin that fish was a price worth paying in order to get trade in other areas over the line. Is that accurate or do we know? We probably don't know precisely how the final parts of this broke down, but certainly it was always going to be the case that the UK, when they're looking for taking back control of their waters, they knew that they were not going to be able to do uh, everything, take back everything. And in the end, they've only got 25%. But they, they knew that if they were going to 
get their hands on particular stocks that are valuable to British and Scottish in particular fishermen, they would have to go for something like mackerel, which is a very valuable stock. And it just so happens that that's the, the valued stock for Ireland. I mean, I think across the board, member states by degrees did realise that they would have to accept some pain on fisheries and you know the pain is not as bad as it could have been the UK was looking for 80% of the value of the stocks that EU boats catch in UK waters and what they got was 25% so you could say that the EU did quite well out of it overall but there were always going to be winners and losers and it looks like Ireland is the main loser on fisheries however there is the Brexit Adjustment Reserve which is the special Brexit fund that was set up by EU leaders last summer it has been proposed now by the European Commission and the first allocations have been, draft allocations have been presented. So out of a 5 billion fund, Ireland's initial allocation is going to be 1 billion. One imagines that the government will try to assuage the agonies of uh, fishing communities with with cash uh, from this fund. Although there will be a fair few communities with agonies to assuage because I suppose we should move to the general disruption across these islands. Today being Friday the 15th of January, the Freight Transport Association in Ireland, RTE saw a letter they wrote to the Taoiseach talking about massive delays. They're saying the impact when the trucks really start rolling again and we see freight traffic hitting peak, it could destroy supply chains and businesses operating tight margins would simply just go out of business and as a result, supply chains would just wither on the vine. I mean, this is an area which is really going to come on in the next few weeks in which the Freight Transport Association is looking to get addressed urgently. Yeah, so this was a letter sent by Aidan Flynn, who's the general manager of the FTAI, to the Taoiseach on Thursday night. We saw a copy of it and we reported on that today. And this reflects, I think, on ease that the relatively unturbulent first week or so of Brexit gave people a false sense of security that things weren't going to be too bad. Yes, there were delays. Yes, there was some talk of shelves not being filled. But in reality, there are clear reasons why there hasn't been that turbulence. And that is because of COVID. It's because it's the first part of the year when trade volumes are low anyway. And a lot of trucks haven't been moving into the port of Dublin from Great Britain because of paperwork problems and the real worry I think in the Irish economy in general is that British retailers and suppliers simply haven't been prepared. They are sending goods to Ireland without their correct paperwork. This is for customs, it's for food supplies, food supplies of animal origin needs export health certificates, those need to be signed off by a vet. Any mistake on those documents at all can be really problematic. There's there's quite a list of products. There's car parts, electrical goods, furniture, clothing, food supplies, and and pharmaceuticals Uh, 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 was highlighted for particular mention. Yeah, everything across the board that you bring in from a third country into Ireland needs checks and controls. Some of these goods need pre-notification of 24 hours. And if you don't have the right paperwork, then you can't get boarded. So there there have been cases or, or Uh, certainly anecdotal evidence that I've heard that a hundred, perhaps hundreds of Irish trucks are stuck in the UK because they can't leave the depots and they can't get on boats. And that is causing a a knock-on problem in that those trucks are not then available in Ireland to get Irish exports out to to the UK and over the land bridge. So I think this letter from the Freight Transport Association was really warning that we've had a bit of a phony war in the first part of January and that things could get a lot worse as those trade volumes start to increase. Right, Sean, how are things looking on your side of the sea? 
grim. The same issues have been arising here, but of course in much greater scale, because while Ireland is a very important trade partner of the UK, it also does an awful lot of trade to the east, and there are problems down in the port of Dover, and in the customs approaches, and in the good old Kent access permit, the Kermit, as it's now known to the truck drivers. Apparently these Kermit permits expire after 24 hours, which drivers are now finding out the hard way, because they're stuck in and those of them who get into some kind of tailback or check have to go back into one of the big uh, truck parks despite having a Kermit they can be stuck there for 24, 36 and then their Kermit expires report on BBC of 41 hours before they were able to get out of the customs checking facility and of course their Kermit has expired and there's been reports on social media of drivers being stopped by the police and fined £300 for guess what not having a valid Kermit in relation to what Tony was just talking about the uh, exports into Ireland and the amount of uh, paperwork that's required for third country exporters to get in this issue again cropped up in the House of Commons in the future relationship with the EU committee. The now, as of uh, Friday evening, sadly terminated. It's now defunct. It's gone. It's finished just as a future relationship was starting, just when you'd think parliamentary scrutiny would be at its most important. That committee is now gone. Might touch on that a little bit later. However, one of the witnesses there, Andrew Oppie of the uh, British Retail Consortium, said he thinks things are going to get worse before they get better. There had been stockpiles built up before Christmas, but they have to be replenished. And they're expecting the volumes to rise of the amount of freight moving across the border. But with those volumes, they're expecting more problems and more delays. So the expectation is that it's going to get more and more difficult over the next two three, four weeks. Mr. Oppie singled out the supply chain to shops in the Republic of Ireland because their supply chains either originate in the UK, they're British retailers operating in Ireland using British sourced goods, or the supply chains run through the UK via this land bridge and into Ireland, quite often through British distribution centres. And we saw when we discussed last week the Percy Pig outrage, goods coming from one bit of the EU moving to Ireland, another bit of the EU, but going via a UK distribution hub suddenly lose their EU protected status and become liable to all sorts of customs rules and possibly tariffs as well. One of the points raised by uh, Andrew Oppie was a lot of the big UK retailers operating in Ireland had told him how surprised they were at how complex and difficult this customs clearance and SPS problem has been. And he said these companies are not SMEs. These are well-resourced, very big companies with lots of people, and they didn't have a clue. So that would tie in with what Tony was saying about how there was a, a, a lack of preparedness amongst British companies for what was needed for exporting into Ireland. A lot of them seem to assume it could be more or less business as usual. Again, Ian Wright from the Food and Drink Federation saying we're looking at 2,000 trucks going into Kent on a daily basis, there's normally 10,000. The Irish Sea volumes are still very light at the moment. And yet, we are seeing all of these difficulties and problems arising. Right. Scottish fishermen and the disruption that's been caused at the moment, I suppose, would be a, a good point to illustrate all of this. It is, and, and specifically the case of the poor old Langustine fishermen, the Scottish Langustines, apparently famed for their succulence and wonderfulness. They like to export them live into the French market in particular. But this becomes a live animal export issue now, and it's the SPS rules that kick in and are causing lots of difficulties for them. They need to have veterinary certification of these animals being exported, and they need to submit that documentation 24 hours before they start to move the load, and that's before they start hitting the 
Kent access permit issues, the queues down at the port areas, all of the other documentation they have to engage in. One of the Scottish members of the, the committee was saying that in her local constituency, the fishermen have basically stopped fishing for langoustines because they were in the habit of loading up their trucks loading from the boats onto the trucks around midnight and then sometime the next morning or later that morning they would be uh, arriving in France heading for the markets in Boulogne and Paris. Now they face a three-day wait to try and get across the short straits, that 24-mile stretch of water between southern England and France and until that is sorted out it is simply not worth it because what starts out as fresh langoustines ends up being considerably less than fresh by the time it reaches the market. A number of the fishermen, or the fish processors rather, have turned to deep freezing the langoustine stocks, but that uh, apparently knocks uh, a big chunk off the profit margin and the price that they can get for the langoustines. And others are starting to stockpile them. We've had one or two angry fishermen suggesting that if things don't change soon, they'd be coming down to the gates of Westminster with a truckload of uh, rotting mackerels and presumably some langoustines as well to dump them and see does that get the attention of the politicians. You'll be on standby with your wok and some ginger, no doubt, when they're dumped out. Clothes straight from my nose, indeed. Uh, Absolutely. Tony, you were also running a story today about another teething issue which hadn't been foreseen and it comes on the issue of steel. Yeah, so we know that the free trade agreement is zero tariff and zero quota, but this is an issue that we have President Trump to thank for because back in 2018, he slapped tariffs on steel and aluminium from around the world. This was, I think, Section 232 order that he slapped to try and prevent steel coming into the US. Now, as a response to that, the EU issued what are called safeguard measures. So to prevent basically all that steel that was floating around the world, to prevent that from landing on European shores and and flooding the market there. So as a result, the EU has a 25% tariff on steel products coming in from the rest of the world. What has happened is that Northern Ireland looks like it's going to face a double whammy when it comes to steel imports. First of all, because of this safeguard measure issue, even though the EU and UK have signed a tariff and quota free trade agreement, the safeguard measures are still apply to the UK. So that means as a third country, the UK will have a quota, but once it goes over that quota, then it will be hit for 25% tariffs. Now, because of the Northern Ireland protocol, that means once the quota is exceeded, any steel going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland gets hit for a 25% quota immediately because the European quota for the rest of the world is by and large non-existent or exceeded. Any steel from India or Korea or Turkey going to Northern Ireland gets hit immediately for a 25% tariff. So that's a kind of a double whammy facing Northern Ireland manufacturing. Now, there's a sting in the tail here for the South because all of the steel that comes into the island of Ireland comes by way of huge rolls of, of steel. And there are only two ports on the island which can handle those big rolls of steel and that's Belfast Port and Warren Point because of the depth of the water and other storage facilities that those ports have. So already this is going to have a knock-on effect on the Irish steel market. I've already been speaking to somebody in the industry who said that well straight away this is going to make steel a lot more expensive than concrete so people will start using concrete in construction. These knock-on effects are sudden and in some ways somebody 
didn't realise that this was going to happen. Now, I'm told the European Commission is looking into this, but it is devilishly complicated because you have these layers of trade rules such as how to respond to Trump's tariffs from 2018. Then you have the fact that the UK decided it would have its own tariff rate quota system when it came to steel. And then you have the Northern Ireland Protocol as another layer on top of all that. And somewhere along the way, people didn't join the dots and now you have a major problem. Right. And it, I suppose, Sean, this isn't the only woe that's occupying the minds of people in Northern Ireland. No, it isn't. But if I could just bring back to the steel, Stephen Kinnock um, did raise this issue in the committee in the House of Commons during the week because Port Talbot Steelworks, the biggest in the UK, happens to be in his constituency. So he was mentioning it. And the, uh, the representative of the manufacturers organisation, Make UK, a guy called Stephen Phipson, was saying that there are easements that could be put into place for steel but he claims that the EU is reluctant to do so for political reasons. Nobody seemed to respond to that or tease that, those supposed political uh, reasons out. For some reason, Northern Ireland manufacturers order their steel from around the world. So obviously there, there's an economic reason for that. But, but they are really worried at the moment because they ordered steel before Christmas. And that steel is currently at sea and the stockholders who are the kind of middlemen in steel contracts are not sure whether they will be able to even land the steel in Northern Ireland if it's going to be hit by a 25% tariff. So manufacturing Northern Ireland, the lobby group there is talking about factories closing. The engineering sector is very big in Northern Ireland. So again, we have to see this how this one plays out. Right. To other matters in Northern Ireland, Sean, what's been coming up during the week? Security uh, has been coming up uh, during the week. Again, another committee, Northern Ireland uh, committee, um, hearing more evidence about the impact on security cooperation in Europe and in particular between Northern Ireland and the Republic. Now that the UK is out of the EU's arrangements, yes, there are elements that have been put in place for continuity in the agreement that was reached on Christmas Eve. But there's a few big holes in the system, as we've mentioned before. Notably, the UK has dropped out of the SIS2, the uh, main computer system that's used for real-time checking of information on wanted persons, missing persons, and vehicle number plates. The British police forces last year made about 600 million checks using that system and of course it also uh, is very handy for border control agents anybody coming through the border presenting a passport that more or less automatically gets checked against that database the uk isn't part of that anymore ironically as we mentioned ireland has now started as of the first of january the very day that the uk was outside of sis republic of ireland has now become a member of sis2 and is starting to use that information system and also the business of extradition has cropped up again number of academics appearing at this committee. The general consensus there seemed to be that it would be important that Ireland and uh, Northern Ireland and the UK get together and agree in a very clear way exactly what kind of extradition arrangements they're going to operate amongst themselves and that would help matters and also some kind of formalising of relationships between police forces to try and institutionalise the good cooperation that exists at the moment and the good sharing of intelligence. But of course, as we know, intelligence uh, information, if it's on a computer, becomes subject to GDPR regulations and various other regulations that have to be complied with. It's not simply a question of coppers ringing each other up. Also, uh, one uh, of the academics, Professor Steve Pearce, suggesting that gaps in the information systems between the Interpol alert system, which the British are going to um, use, to try and uh, replace the SIS2, but it won't be as good as, and they all admit that, that could be done, particularly for 
countries that they do a lot of, shall we say, law and order business with, like Ireland, by developing software systems that would in some ways have an enhanced amount of checking. In other words, that Irish police, when they're using the SIS2 system, would have some kind of a plug-in software that would also interrogate the Interpol database and see if the same names are cropping up uh, and get uh, alerts out there to try and reduce the amount of space, the amount of gaps through which criminals or wanted people or missing people might fall in the in the course of uh, business. But watch that one, security issues, law and order issues, policing issues, that one's going to run and run. Right. Tony, groupage, explain. Yeah. So uh, this is another word that Brexit has it's bequeathed it, us all. When we, when we release the Ladybird book of this podcast, it'll be in red at the bottom. Today's new word is groupage. <laughs> groupage, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's basically what happens when you uh, have a truck with a lot of mixed loads. And this has been a real problem and concern for the, I suppose, the artisanal food sector in Northern Ireland, because they would get small loads of different kinds of food from different parts of the UK. But what happens is, for economic reasons, you don't send them all on individual trucks. You get one big truck to, to make a four or five, six different stops and you bring the whole mixed load over and to distribute to your customers but now with Brexit and the fact that you're bringing in food possibly food of animal origin these all need to have uh, export health certificates they they all need to clear SPS rules coming into Northern Ireland and if you have to separate all of these into into other trucks then it's going to get very expensive and just not viable for companies who need to bring this stuff in but yet when you're bringing it in, you need to seal the truck and let the authorities know what you're bringing in because it's food. There's a whole sequence of numbers and scanners and uh, iPads that are involved at ports and right along the, the value chain. So groupage is basically allowing one truck to take five or six, in fact, up to 26, I think, different pallets on a truck. And instead of having one seal and and you have to break the seal every time you stop off to get another load what they're talking about now is having what they're calling shrouds so you have a, a kind of a plastic shroud over an individual pallet and that is sealed and you can sort of prove that it's sealed so therefore every time you stop off to get another load you don't need to to break a right. seal uh, opening and, the seven seals of the apocalypse to get all biblical on it yeah, I sense a, a headline for this podcast is <laughs> taking shape in your brain right this minute. Well, we only have three horsemen <laughs> at the moment, but yeah. the other so, one's stuck uh, at SBS checks at Dover, <laughs> I think. <laughs> well, he nearly got it, prevented it from going to Cheltenham later in the year it, until it, it, a temporary it, export licence, which this is an issue that, that, that did come up. Willie Mullins, the horse trainer, thought he was going to have a, tw- a 19% tariff slapped on the horse, which would then be refunded at a later date, and this was going to hit any horses heading over to Cheltenham but apparently that was halfway through the afternoon declared officially almost a non-story because a non-starter non-runner a non-starter is right Uh, a temporary export license will be issued to horses and that gets over that particular fence to stretch this analogy that's a big Kildare issue isn't it it is a big Kildare issue having to pay tax imagine that sorry did I say that yeah no VAT I think was the issue there and how that will be refunded and and, uh, as soon as I heard it actually earlier this morning on, on RT radio I thought given the amount of rich people and toffs who are involved in the administration of horse racing, this one will not be long about getting fixed. Sean, obviously you're not a man who goes to the Leopardstown races when you're home on your holidays and 
despite you that rather fetching hat you're sometimes seen around the office with which wouldn't be out of place at a horse it would race not. it would not but no no not even am i on any of these apps for betting and squandering my money in that that way uh, no but i do recognize it as a, a an important industry for people who have uh, lots of land and horses very good um well salvaged sean you started off your contributions with the Kermit and Kent and Irish uh, hauliers have been looking away, looking at a way of getting around that. There's a supersized ferry has been acquired in order to beat the Kermit. Well, it's a, it's been acquired by Stenaline and uh, they acquired it from a shipyard in uh, China where they had this thing built. But uh, there were some uh, rather arresting photographs um, published by uh, Rosslair Port during the week of two ferries uh, parked side by side on the quayside uh, in, in that port. One was the existing Stena uh, ferry, which is going on this uh, new, newly established line to France, uh, a direct route from Rosslair. And uh, the beside it, this brand new ferry that's just arrived, it was originally supposed to uh, run on the uh, Belfast to I think it's to Karen Ryan, Karen, Karen Ryan or, or uh, Larne. Uh, not sure which one it was. Anyway, Bur- it was it, Northern Ireland, Scotland, I think they were talking about originally and then further down. this, They put it onto the French run because there's so much demand uh, for uh, space from uh, truckers trying to get around the land bridge and get uh, direct lines. Is there a significant difference in size? Did it resemble it's pictures of ti- it's Scooby-Doo and his diminutive bigger. nephew Scrappy? The first one Scrappy. had about 1,000 lane kilometres uh, sort of thousand lane meters, uh, one kilometer of truck parking uh, on board. The new one has uh, just over three kilometers. Uh, so it's a you know seriously big looking ferry uh, with a helipad uh, on the top of it, which adds to the um, James Bondish allure of it. Uh, but uh, again, a sign of uh, how quickly the demand. Uh, for these additional ferries uh, has been established uh, and the uh, increase I think has gone from five uh, weekly sailings to 15 uh, uh, direct roll-on roll-off ferries uh, from really a standing start. Uh, This was a very very fast uh, move into a whole new area for the Irish uh, logistics business. But even the thought of spending 24 hours on a car ferry getting from Rosslair to Dunkirk seems to be more appealing than spending who knows how long uh, in uh, queues uh, in England waiting for permits and kermits and checks and SPSs and and all kinds of other things. I suppose the optics, Sean, of that uh, being plucked away from the Belfast to Birkenhead route, I think it was... You know, is very bad given the increasingly sectarian analysis of the first few weeks of Brexit in Northern Ireland, with the the DUP threatening to trigger or pushing the government, the British government, to trigger Article 16 of the Protocol to have it somehow set aside or or uh, removed from the equation. Which brings us neatly uh, to Article 16 because we did want yes, to cover that, and we did we, we did, did say yes. we'd get this done in half an hour. But you locatious yeah. scamps now have gone over. We did a Brexit on it. Yes. Uh, yeah, I th- this was raised by Geoffrey Donaldson with n- no less a figure than Boris Johnson in uh, Prime Minister's questions during the week. Uh, he said, look, the, uh, raising the, the problems of supply into Northern Ireland supermarkets. Uh, Mr. Johnson disputed that they were uh, as bad as uh, Mr. Donaldson was uh, painting them out to be and saying they weren't really experiencing uh, 
serious supply chain difficulties. There were teething troubles and that they'd be sorted out in the coming weeks. But if it got uh, seriously out of hand, then the British government would not be found wanting and uh, could indeed invoke Article 16. Now, this is a kind of an emergency break procedure where you can have a temporary suspension Uh, of uh, aspects of the protocol to try and sort out a serious economic or societal or environmental disturbance or disruption uh, in uh, the agreement. Uh, This again was picked up by Geoffrey Donaldson himself later on, uh, about an hour later, in uh, urgent questions to Michael Gove, uh, who again took the government line, no serious disruption, Uh, it'll be done if it needs to be done. That's what he told to John Redwood who, uh, as part of the ERG, if you remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about this, uh, they had pinpointed Northern Ireland and fishing as the two trouble spot areas. Um, Also, Julian Smith, the former Northern Ireland Secretary, asking Mr Gove if he would use his negotiating skills and the relationships he now has with the EU to try and extend the grace period for Northern Ireland supermarkets to the whole of 2021. And, intriguingly, I thought he said uh, to Mr Gove, I think you'll find that the EU is up for it if you ask them for it. Uh, so I don't know whether Tony, Tony has any insight yeah. on is, that is the, one. Is the no. EU up for it? No, <laughs> <laughs> they're they're not. Article 16 is a standard safeguard measure that you'll find in any free trade agreement, and it those measures are designed to protect one of the parties from a sudden unforeseen surge in a particular product that would undercut uh, one of their own constituencies or, or sectors uh, and I'm what I'm told is that the, for, first of all the Irish government was actually quite alarmed at Boris Johnson hinting that he could look seriously at Article 16. It's, it's one thing for DUP MPs to, to call for it to be triggered but for Boris Johnson himself to give a nudge and a wink in that direction uh, caused quite some alarm in Dublin uh, but in reality Article 16 is just a safeguard measure that you get in other free trade agreements and it's in the European Economic Area which of course is the treaty which binds EFTA and the EU and uh, that particular provision has only ever been triggered once in all of the EEA's uh, history and that apparently was either an Irish or an Irish-UK move um, because suddenly, for whatever reason, Norwegian salmon was flooding the Irish and British market uh, as a result of the EEA treaty and uh, they triggered the safeguard tariffs to try and rebalance the situation. Uh, But the idea that Article 16 is some magical switch to disapply the protocol is frankly for the birds and it's it's being viewed in in that uh, in that context in uh, in brussels right do, do nevertheless you know- in, in westminster um, the impression seems to be afoot that the uh, irish government uh, have suspended or disapplied some elements of the northern ireland protocol by which i think they mean introducing some easements in uh, to make it a little bit easier for the flow of goods coming in through the customs set up at dublin port well i think there's uh, security related easements, revenue, customs spokesperson who was on the week before last was on on radio saying that I think they were security related issues that there had been easements on but maybe there have been other subsequent. I think also they have made it easier to upload uh, information on to declarations. Uh, I think that's one of the easements that they're talking about but Hmm. it it should be remembered as well that that Ireland, the south of Ireland doesn't in, won't enjoy any grace period at all. There's a, there are two grace periods 
for the north. One is a three-month grace period for uh, uh, export health certificates that those documents Sean were, was talking about, which a vet has to sign off. Those aren't going to be necessary for most traders um, for the first three months. And then the supermarkets will have to somehow adapt. And then there's a six-month grace period for the famous sausages and chilled prepared meals that we talked about before coming in. The thing is that the UK issued a unilateral declaration in December promising that the grace period for export health certificates, that the, the three-month one, would be that would be it and no more, no further. So they have promised in a unilateral declaration that they wouldn't uh, ask for an extension to that particular grace period. Whereas the six-month one for sausages and chilled meats, there might be a bit more leeway there. Uh, but, you know, I, th- I think people have to be careful with this idea that the EU is simply going to roll over uh, one grace period after another, you know, year on year. Right. But I think we should just maybe just briefly look ahead uh, to uh, two items coming up on the British parliamentary agenda. Uh, on Wednesday, the Northern Ireland Secretary of State, Brandon Lewis, is at the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee to answer questions about the uh, impact of Brexit on GBNI trade, which could be quite interesting, uh, and also on Northern Ireland security matters, which also might be quite interesting, though I suspect most of the uh, fire and brimstone will be in the uh, GBNI trade uh, aspects of it. Uh, good luck to Mr Lewis at that. Uh, Also on Thursday, we will have the final report of the future relationship uh, with the EU committee. That's the one chaired by Hilary Benn. We were talking about uh, it earlier, uh, the uh, appearance of of experts at that. A very sad day, I have to say, because it's been a great source of information for Brexit nerds of every uh, hue and stripe. Uh, And also, you would have thought just now, at this really critical time, just as the deal is being unpacked, uh, and uh, things are unfolding in a very, very practical way, that would be exactly the time that you would want a committee, a specialist committee with really skilled staff on it, dealing with issues like this. Unfortunately, uh, they shut it down. They couldn't get a, a government majority in favour of uh, extending the remit of the committee. Uh, it seems the government prefer to have all of the committees Uh, the various committees in the House dealing with EU relationship issues on an ad hoc basis as and when they arise. Uh, And of course, they won't have specialists, they won't have specialist staff, uh, and that will just make life a lot easier for the government uh, and a lot harder for everybody else who's interested in scrutiny. And scrutiny also of these specialist joint committees on things like the Northern Ireland Protocol and the Joint Committee itself. People have had had enough of experts. Not me, I, I love experts. Public. Tony, anything coming up on the horizon? Yeah, well, I think next week is going to be dominated in Brussels by COVID and the, and the vaccine issue. On the Brexit front, we are going to see the re-emergence of uh, the Joint Committee, uh, which is overseeing all, a lot of these issues around the protocol that we've talked about, and the specialised committee that deals in the more technical detail of that sort of stuff. Um, and also we are going to get the Joint Working Joint Consultative Working Group. That's another layer of officialdom, which is going to be monitoring how the whole thing is functioning going forward. Uh, that's going to be uh, British and EU officials and also member state officials. I think Belfast will be involved, Dublin. Uh, so that's trying to fine tune. Is that in any uh, way public or minutes or in any way that's. I don't know, actually. I mean, I think it's, yeah, I mean, there are so many committees knocking around now. There's, there's the Joint Partnership 
Council, which will be the glue between Britain and the EU on the future relationship treaty. Uh, and that's going to have something like 30 subcommittees uh, looking at all the different areas of the TCA, as we're going to be calling it. Right. So uh, It's yeah. all unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats meeting in secret. If only the EU process was... In oh, sorry. That's <laughs> anyway, no, that's exactly the argument for having a, an EU Affairs Committee, Specialist Committee here uh, in the British Parliament. Who is going to keep an eye on these committees, which are going to be right. stuffed full of the, the classic faceless bureaucrats? Us, 42 minutes every week, despite commitments to half an hour. I think we're going to have to wrap yeah. it there, gents. You know who's going to eat all of that excess Scottish fish, don't you? The seven seals of the apocalypse. Right, moving swiftly along. All right. <laughs> That's it from me, Colm O'Mungine, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, RTE's Correspondent in London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks as always for listening.